Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Florida Humanities Council hosts a seminar for teachers in historic St. Augustine. That's kind of the focus of what the workshop is, is not only to give people a sense of history, but to give them a sense of another colonial experience that was not the Plymouth colonial experience, and it was not the Jamestown or Williamsburg colonial experience. Controversial U.S. Senator Matthew Quay visited Florida annually in the late 1800s. At that time, coming to St. Lucie would be like now going to Africa for on a safari because there were no roads, the railroad wasn't here yet. And we'll look at the role of Florida women in the American Civil War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I do not deny what I did. Regret? Perhaps. Yes, perhaps, some days. Deny? Never. For if you would have witnessed what I saw when we disembarked, all of my countrymen, Asturianos, my, my neighbors, my relatives from here and Aviles and nearing towns like Villaviciosa, Holongo, Grado, Sierra, Gijón, Cousins, all men and women with names like Menendez, but also Marquez, Miranda, Junco, Ribeira, Flores, Meraz, Solis. All cousins, all bowing their heads in reverence and kneeling in the sand of this place that we would call San Agustin. When we saw Padre López Grajales raise his cross and said his mass, surely God was there. Perhaps I err. I don't know. But for us, having arrived was an act of God. And we were his willing agents. We had brought a new beauty to a place already beautiful, no question, but perhaps now graced with the divine purpose. Actor Chaz Mena portrays Pedro Menendez de Avales, who founded St. Augustine in 1565. The performance is part of a summer seminar for teachers called Between Columbus and Jamestown, Spanish St. Augustine. The Florida Humanities Council presents this five-day seminar along with two others, Jump at the Sun, Zora Neale Hurston and her Eatonville Roots, and Tribal Traditions in the Modern World, the Seminole Tribe, Their Voices and Their Stories. Each of these summer seminars offers teachers the opportunity to learn about Florida history and culture from distinguished scholars, tour historic sites, and exchange ideas about creating innovative classroom resources to integrate Florida history and culture into their courses. Dr. Michael Gannon, Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida, is one of the most respected historians in the state and recipient of the inaugural Lifetime Literary Achievement Award presented by Governor Charlie Crist. Dr. Gannon is a presenter at the Florida Humanities Council Summer Seminar for Teachers in St. Augustine. Our teachers are the most precious resource we have. Uh, I admire greatly um, the men and women who teach in elementary, middle, and um, high school uh, programs. Um, they have the most difficult teaching tasks 
of any of us in the academic life, and they carry it off splendidly. They have to handle so many things that a university professor doesn't have to deal with, such as discipline and health matters and, and uh, concentrated interaction with parents and, and so on. And they expend a great amount of energy on young people, and they give them outstanding educational formations. I have been trying over the years to help them understand the need for better and more extensive instruction in Florida history. Recently, when I was given an award at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee by Governor Christ, and he invited me to say a word, I took that particular tack and I said, Governor, we are a state of many diverse populations, many uh, ethnic and racial groups form our, our, the, the, the people we call the people of Florida. We have many diverse traits and backgrounds. The one thing that we all share now, whether we are old citizens or newcomers, is our Florida history. It belongs to each of us equally. And uh, we just don't have the opportunity in our school systems to learn it well enough. And I explained to him <laughs> that his predecessor, Governor Jeb Bush, told me that when he grew up in Texas, he had Texas history taught to him for three years running. And, uh, and they really put a lot of time into it. And by the time you graduated from the Texas school system, you knew the history of your state. And I said, I think that's one of the reasons there's such unity in the state and such pride in the state. And we could use a little of that in Florida. I was grateful to see that he nodded his head. I hope something will be done about it. <laughs> Dr. James Cusick is curator of the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida's George A. Smathers Libraries. Before focusing his scholarly work on documentary records, Dr. Cusick was an archaeologist working under Kathleen Deegan in the mid-1980s. Much of his archaeological field experience was in St. Augustine. Dr. Cusick is the lead scholar for the teacher seminar focusing on Spanish colonial St. Augustine. It's very difficult to cover even all of St. Augustine's uh, colonial period because uh, you're dealing with essentially almost 300 years, 250 years of, uh, of time. Uh, and the, uh, the town changes a great deal over those two and a half centuries. Um, but what we try and incorporate in this program is first uh, a good sense of uh, how and why the town was founded, uh, because part of the story of the town is simply that it survived so long. Uh, usually somewhere in the course of the workshop, I, I, I like to talk to the teachers and say, look, you know, the most interesting thing about St. Augustine is not that necessarily that it's the oldest city in America, or it's the first this, or it's the first that. But you know, the, the most interesting thing to me is that this city is the same age as Boston and New York City and Philadelphia uh, and Charleston. Uh, and uh, it's older than a lot of other cities on the eastern seaboard. And yet it's still this really tiny city of 14,000 people. And it survived longer than any of these giant metropolitan areas, basically. And it survived basically at the same scale it's always been. It never grew into a giant uh, city. It never grew into a city of high-rises and condos. It's still pretty much uh, a 19th century-looking city with a lot of earlier elements in it. So over the course of the, of the, uh, of the week, 
they hear from Michael Gannon, and uh, we, you heard Mike this morning. It's a, always a pleasure to hear Mike. Mike spoke uh, at length about the early uh, and unsuccessful expeditions to settle Florida, uh, and then he talked about uh, the, the founding of St. Augustine uh, under Menendez, and he spoke a good deal um, about uh, the early uh, re uh, efforts in, uh, in religion among the missionaries and the priests uh, to try and preach the gospel and go out into the hinterlands to the, uh, to the Indian societies. Uh, and in the afternoon, we heard kind of the opposite. We heard a little bit about what it was like to live among the Appalachian and what, uh, and what uh, Appalachian culture was like uh, over in the Tallahassee area and, uh, and uh, how uh, an Appalachian mission town looked. Uh, and we heard this from Bonnie McEwen, who's director of the archaeological park there. Uh, and later in the week, we're going to hear about uh, the, uh, I don't want to say influx, because that assumes a lot of people, but at least the, uh, the, the gradual arrival of runaway slaves from the English colonies who came in, uh, you know, to in, in, in scores, you know, a couple hundred people over 10, 20 years in the, in the 1700s. And you get to hear about the experience of these uh, people who had been captured in Africa and enslaved in the Americas and uh, run away and now had a chance to regain their freedom, but in a totally different society that they had to adapt to. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then to a, a little extent, we also hear a little bit about uh, 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 women's lives, children's lives. And so that's, that's kind of the... That's kind of the focus of what the workshop is, is not only to give people a sense of history, but to give them a sense of another colonial experience that was not the Plymouth colonial experience and it was not the Jamestown or Williamsburg colonial experience, uh, but to remind people that in, in, in Florida has a long, rich history, and it's a long, rich history made up of Native American families and mestizo families of families that were uh, intermixed between uh, Spanish and uh, Indian heritage, of free black families, um, and uh, of later immigrants, even in the colonial period, French immigrants, uh, immigrants from the Mediterranean and the Greek islands. Uh, and, and, so it's, uh, and so, you know, we try and give people a, a broad sweep of what the colonial period was like, hoping that even if they don't absorb all of it, they'll find the pieces, the bits and pieces that are meaningful to them and that are useful uh, to take back to their areas um, and to teach to their students. In addition to enjoying scholarly presentations about Florida history and culture, participants in the Florida Humanities Council's Summer Seminars for Teachers tour historic sites, which allows them to speak with greater authority in the classroom. They also attend dramatic presentations that bring history to life. The summer seminars for teachers have inspired tangible results that are used in classrooms throughout the state. Jim Cusick. We've had at least two teachers get so inspired. One wrote a fictional book, right, and one wrote a, a nonfiction book. Uh, so I, I think America's First Thanksgiving came out of this. That's the nonfiction book. And Saving Home, which is about the 1702 siege of St. Augustine, that came out as a, as a, as a, a youth fiction book, a juvenile fiction book. Um, and like I said, we have, we have at least one original song online that, uh, that one of our teachers who teaches music, she composed the music and the lyrics, and she taught it to her class as part of a play that they were putting on about the Castillo de San Marcos. Uh, we've had teachers come who teach classes in photography. 
And they have sent back the photographs that they took so that they could be incorporated in the image gallery that's online so that other people could use them. And they're much better photographers than me or anybody else in the program. So uh, we've had... Um, uh, We've had some people uh, do things like uh, 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 cartoon histories. Uh, we've had some people do art. Um, so people do find their own ways uh, to not only to, to absorb the material, but to use the material, and also to, to give back uh, with the material, too. They, you know, like I said, it's, we always appreciate the fact that some people will let us put their, their creative works up for free, really, on the web for the use of other teachers. And, uh, and teachers have also, at least in the first few years, um, were very busy creating lesson plans. And we have like a dozen lesson plans, suggested lesson plans up uh, with, uh, with the uh, source material that you need for them. Um, so, uh, so it does seem, yeah, it does seem to be very positive uh, in that way. Actor Chaz Mena is known for his portrayal of Cuban writer and political activist Jose Marti. More recently, he's been performing a one-man show as St. Augustine founder Pedro Menendez de Avales. Coming from uh, a Cuban family whose grandparents, great-grandparents, had fought against Spain, I had, <laughs> we had the same type of attitude that most Irish Americans can remember their grandparents having about the English, you know. Uh, it was the mother country, and they had to throw their throw the yoke off of them to, to have an independent country. So um, I grew up with, with, you know, tales of the Spanish-American War and stuff like that. My great-grandfather was, was actually killed fighting Spanish imperialism in Cuba. Um, that said, uh, I was approached by the Florida Humanities Council after I was, I was happily very successful with the Jose Marti uh, Chautauqua, one-person show that I've taken all over the country. And, um, and I was asked to see if I were interested in... Uh, you know, conducting in uh, a Chautauqua in the life of the first colonial period, actually the very first chapter in our history. And I was, we're very excited by it, you know. Um, it's, it's, it reads like the Iliad, you know. I've read the letters <clears throat> that um, Pedro Menendez wrote to his, to his king, Philip II, and you read those and they, they, they're, there's a huge, fantastical, adventurous epic, you know. Every American should read these stories because it really creates the, I say, the, the texture of this country, which, which we're trying to strive for even now as a meritocracy. These men and women that came over across the Atlantic really depended on their skills, you know, and their social skills as well as their uh, professional skills, what they brought to the community. Mena's portrayal of Menendez is part of the Florida Humanities Council Summer Seminar for Teachers between Columbus and Jamestown, Spanish St. Augustine. Since my return from La Florida, even at stepping off the boat at Cariz, people were different to me. People who at one time would put their arm over me or call from afar, Pedrito, como te va? People who might not know my life. Suddenly, these very same people were treating me with a kind of I don't know, deference, agreeing with me too quickly, not making me work hard to make my point, to state my opinion about anything, the shape of a cloud, the weather, how the war in Flanders is going, anything. Why am I feared? Well, I suppose news of what happened in La Florida has clouded people's judgments. For there is a saying in Asturias, Haga fama y acuesta de dormir. Do you know what this means? 
Once you have a bad reputation, you may as well go to bed. Nothing you can do will fix it. But that I live to serve my king and my people, and by that serving God, that no one dare deny. At least not to my face. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you enjoy this program, please become a member of the Florida Historical Society by visiting our website at myfloridahistory.org and clicking on the Join Now button. While you're there, you can listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers, check out our calendar of upcoming events, and discover great books on Florida history and culture. That's myfloridahistory.org. In his day, Philadelphia Senator Matthew Quay was a controversial figure. As Janie Gould tells us, Senator Quay came to Florida annually in the late 1800s. During the nation's Gilded Age, a well-connected political boss from Philadelphia named Matthew Quay discovered the Indian River. He built a home in St. Lucie and spent more than a dozen winters enjoying the tarpon fishing and mild weather. Quay was a powerful member of the U.S. Senate and a Republican kingmaker. His enemies branded him as a drunk and a thief, and after he died in 1904, he was pretty much forgotten. St. Lucie County native Jean Ellen Wilson had never even heard of Quay when she was growing up many years later. Then, in the 1990s, when she was working in Washington, D.C., she came across Quay's name in the link to St. Lucie and found that his Florida papers were in the library of Congress. And in those papers, among many other things, she found newspaper interviews with him that were dateline St. Lucie from 1890. At that time, coming to St. Lucie would be like now going to Africa for on a safari because there were no roads. The railroad wasn't here yet. There was like four families between Vero and Jupiter. Theodore Roosevelt knew him and liked him. Did you ever find any records of him coming here? No, but I have a copy of a telegram he sent to uh, Senator Quay at St. Lucie. He called his house Kilcare to Matthew at Kilcare. I have done what you asked me to do. And you don't know what that was? No. Made Grand Canyon a national park, possibly? (laughs) Maybe give some postmaster a job. Who knows? Probably something like that. Senator Quay is known, if he's known at all, for getting funding to dredge the Intracoastal Waterway. But you say he loved Florida and he did a lot more things. Any bill that was in the coffers in Congress that was going to aid South Florida, he would get behind. At that time, we did not have particularly influential senators, so he would be the lead senator. Quay's public image was sometimes less than stellar. Oh, yes. Why was that? Well, he was very shrewd. He could be ruthless. And he wanted to win in politics, so he made enemies. But I'm so bookish that I have to say that somebody who reads a lot can't be all bad. He had one of the finest libraries in the United States. He had a cousin who he got elected governor of Pennsylvania. They exchanged letters in Latin. He was a learned, thoughtful man. He gave money to all kinds of local causes. He put the place on the map for these other wealthy people to start coming. He did have a niece who came down. Her name was Marion Quay. There was a house party in the Quay compound. One morning she thought she'd go fishing, but then one of the Summerlands, I think it was Clarence, said, well, it's a good day for a gator hunt. So Clarence and Aiden took her and her cousin on a gator hunt. They made noises at this gator pond to try to bring up this 
gator. They called it grumble them up. You mean the gator sound? Yeah. Finally, a gator came up, and she shot it. Well, it turned out to be, I think she said, an ignominious three feet. And her cousin could not stop laughing because she said, look, you shot that gator in your gloves and your veil. The members of the house party laugh at her so much about this little tiny gator that she decides she's going to go back out there. This time they have a pole with a hook on the end of it. They keep sticking it in the bottom of this pond until they hit a gator and the gator jumped up and she shot the gator right between the eyes. She took the skin back up north to Philadelphia. A true Florida souvenir. Jean Ellen Wilson notes that there are few local reminders of Matthew Quay. There's one little alley or back street up in St. Lucie that's called Quay Way. This guy knew every important person in the United States, and he was here almost every year from like 1885 until his death in 1904. That was Jean Ellen Wilson of Fort Pierce. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Although Florida's role in the war between the states is often marginalized by historians, our state sent the South's highest percentage of eligible men into the service of the Confederacy. Bill Dudley speaks with an historian about the women who were left behind to maintain the home front during this turbulent time. I think what surprised me the most was how quickly they were ready for the war to be over with. Born and raised near the North Florida town of Madison, Tracy Revels is Associate Professor of History at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We have this sort of image of the Southern woman who wants to fight to the bitter end, and of course some did. But I would keep turning up these letters that were written at the end of the first year of the war where they would say, okay, honor is satisfied, dear, come home. And I... I like to think that women were just very pragmatic. They realized because they were on the home front and they saw everything deteriorating. In writing her recent book, Grander and Her Daughters, Florida's Women During the Civil War, Revels used diaries, letters, and scrapbooks, what historians call primary sources, to reveal the untold story of women's war experiences. Although parts of 1860s Florida were divided off into farms and plantations, much of the state was still thinly settled. A lot of Florida was still pretty much a howling wilderness. And women in Florida, I think, in a lot of ways were like women on the frontier out west. They had to be pretty self-reliant, pretty tough, particularly the, and these are women I talk about a lot in the book, the cracker women, the poor sort of ordinary women who would do their chores with a shotgun nearby because you never knew 
when there might be some sort of predator around. Of all the issues faced by these women, uppermost was the loss of the men in their lives. Suddenly, they were forced to take over the management of farms, stores, and plantations. For some women, this was what they were good at. But then there were other women who, quite frankly, had never had to do these things before. And it was a great mystery to them. And then, of course, for the women who owned slaves, dealing with the slaves and being the chief disciplinarian was something that most of them were not really accustomed to. And there was the strain of maintaining constant vigilance for the well-being of families during a period of upheaval and violence. During the later phases of the war, there were areas that were we might call anarchical. There were, within certain counties of Florida, civil wars within counties. Florida Southern College historian Mike Denham. Governor John Milton wrote one of the officials in the Confederate States of America in Richmond. He said that our western provinces are basically, we, we no longer can keep the public in check. There was a lot of violence everywhere. And one thing that women, especially in Florida, if they were in an area where there had been some skirmishing, like near Pensacola or near Jacksonville, People would just show up at their doorsteps, and they don't know, are these Union soldiers, are they Confederate soldiers, are they deserters, are they up to no good? And there's one woman from West Florida who writes, and I thought this was a uniquely female solution to a problem. She says, I just served them all out of the same spoon. For some women, the war marked a time of questioning, of divided loyalties, or even outright rebellion. While we think of Southern women as you know being sort of like Scarlet and Melanie and Gone with the Wind, they're not all that way. And in Florida, you have a lot of women who are opposed to the war, who object to the war, who don't want their husbands and sons going off to the war. And of course, there's the women that everybody forgets, the slave and the free black women, who are looking for freedom, a better life after the war, and often are sort of waging their own little wars on the home front. Many letters show anti-slavery feelings among women leading relatively settled lives on Florida's plantations, even as their husbands were off fighting for the Confederacy. They were just simply tired of having to manage slaves. They were tired of this sort of psychological warfare. There's a letter where a man writes to his wife and he says, I've often heard you tell the slaves that you wish the Yankees had them. Well, that's going to come about soon. And so I, I think that it wasn't that they were raving abolitionist, but they simply realized this is not a good system. It doesn't work very well, and we would be better off not living this way. Stepping into new and unfamiliar roles while struggling to protect themselves and their homes often conflicted between loyalty to nation and family. The women in Revel's book make us challenge some long-held assumptions and Hollywood stereotypes. What Professor Revels does is basically looks at uh, that myth and does what any good historian does, and that is paint a picture of what really existed, and that is a, a far less romanticized view of women in Florida. At one point in my writing, I got to asking myself the question, what is a woman's country? You know, the men talk about, I'm going to fight for my country, whether they're talking about the Union or like Robert E. Lee talking about Virginia. What's a woman's country? This time, a woman's country is her family, her home life. And so I was really surprised at how quickly some of them were saying, just come home, let's end the war, let's accept defeat, let's just go on with life. Life is more important than these ideals. Historian Tracy Revels, Grander and Her Daughters, Florida's Women During the Civil War, is published by University of South Carolina Press. 
I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.